0: Good evening. Uh, Please keep your Bibles open at Psalm 24. And before we start, why don't I pray again? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. Please give us ears to hear and hearts to understand as we look at this psalm. Also, Lord, we ask that you help us to apply your word in our lives, all for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure we've all heard the expression, wow, they'll let anyone in here. Someone comes to a venue and we jokingly wonder how they got in. It's a typical Aussie greeting. And we all have that friend who turns up either underdressed or for some reason looks out of place at a function. And that could have even been us at some point and we felt a little bit embarrassed. But we can sometimes have a sense that it's our right or that we qualify to enter certain places, that it's easy to gain entry. And right of entry can be true for many establishments. The bar can be set pretty low for dress code and you can be an everyday, ordinary person to gain entry. The host or owner might be pretty easygoing. You don't need to be a king to go to Burger King And you don't even need to be a burger. (laughs) For other venues, it could be quite difficult to gain entry. The entry requirements might dictate a strict dress code. And you can't be just anyone. For example, there's going to be requirements that you will need to meet. And you'll need a formal invitation to uh, attend an event where, say, the Prime Minister might be. For many, one place believed to have an easy gain of entry is heaven. A popular guideline used to determine the entry requirements into heaven is that they believe that God exists and that he simply welcomes them in. And although that statement has an air of truth about it, there needs to be a deeper understanding of who God actually is and a better knowledge of the character of God and how we can stand in his presence. Some, however, might consider heaven quite difficult to gain entry into. Questions can arise like, do I really have the right to just enter and stand in the presence of God? Am I even invited? Well, Let's take a look at Psalm 24 and begin with a point that firstly establishes the significance of God. And that is, that God made the entire world and he owns everything. Looking at verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 24, it says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Many kings would attempt to lay claim that the world around them belonged to them that their subjects and armies under them belonged to their king. In fact, some kings would consider that there was none greater than themselves, that they were absolutely sovereign. Genghis Khan is an example. He obtained a massive amount of territory under his rule. His campaigns of plunder and conquest eventually led to the establishment of his huge empire. And although accounts like this are from kings of the past, there are rulers today and there will be rulers in authority in the future that will exalt themselves also. King David, who wrote this psalm, was a noble and successful king. Yet he was the king of a relatively small kingdom. It was by no means a global superpower. In fact, from a world perspective, the kingdoms of Egypt and Assyria were far greater in terms of military might and wealth than the kingdom of Israel. But David knew God, and he begins this psalm declaring that the world was created by God and that it belongs to him and not superpower kingdoms. The beginning of verse 1 jumps out and says, the earth is the Lord's. It's a powerful statement, and it should influence how we perceive the world around us. My dad's from Austria and he knows and is able to describe full well the immensity of the Austrian Alps, the pure white snow in the winter with big evergreen trees, home to many chirping birds in the summer. I haven't been there, maybe you have, but I've seen it in movies and heard enough from my dad to consider its massive expanse. All that created enormity, whether it be the vast oceans or the bigness of the mighty European Alps, literally a high point of creation. It was created by the transcendent power of a big God and it all belongs to him. And the pinnacle of God's creation is people, all who live in it. This is you and me. Therefore, he not only claims ownership of everything, but of every one. So in light of God's established ownership of the world and everything in it, it surely begs the big question, which is in fact the second point of this psalm. Who can stand in the presence of God? Perhaps some of you might have visited the United Kingdom. Maybe you had the chance to stand outside Buckingham Palace where once the Queen and now King Charles III can be found. If you haven't been there, it's pretty easy to get there. It takes a bit of money to travel, a plane ticket and a passport. It's certainly possible. But what would be extremely difficult is that once you're at Buckingham Palace, you can't just waltz in the front gate, kick open the front door, and just stroll up to the King of England, stand in his presence, and boldly ask him for a cup of tea. I'm sure you wouldn't even get three feet in your attempt before you were crash-tackled to the ground and restrained. If attempting to just walk up and stand in the presence of King Charles, seems like a difficult and daunting proposal. Then imagine how much more difficult it would be to stand in the presence of Yahweh, the sovereign, powerful creator of the whole world, and who owns it. Verse 3 says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? One might say this means entering the most holy place in the temple. What the question is asking is who actually has the right to stand in the very presence of God, the creator? What does it take? We don't have to wait long for the answer. David immediately tells us in verse 4, who may stand in the presence of God, verse 4 says the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Here there's four aspects given. Clean hands and a pure heart with no idols and not swearing by a false god. Let's consider them a little more in detail. The one who has clean hands. Now to have clean hands isn't talking literally about washing or sanitising your hands so that they're physically cleaned. If that was so, then we all meet that requirement without a problem, thanks to COVID. What Clean Hands is talking about is our outward actions, our outward life of living in obedience to God's way, an outward life not stained by our actions, and to have a pure heart. That is our inward motivations and intentions. Like with clean hands, a clean conscience. A heart that is completely motivated to obey God and do His will. And a pure heart will, of course, produce godly outward actions. Also, the one who does not trust in an idol that would take the place of God in our lives. And the one that does not swear. By a false God, some translations say, or to swear deceitfully. David's declaring that God the Creator rules on a moral foundation. And as God's people, we want to strive to live in God's way. Being people with clean hands and a pure heart, like it says here, that's what we seek. With genuine hearts to live a life that brings glory to God. And to continue in that. And that is good. What a great thing to aspire to as we start a new year. Hearts and actions faithful to God. That we are genuine in our desire to live as God's people. But it's easy to look at this list and say, you know what? My hands are not always clean. My heart is not always pure. Idolatry can be subtle and can be stubborn in my heart. It's very easy to make promises and have even just a small amount of deceit. Even King David, a man after God's own heart... It gives us the answer in verse 4. Can't lay claim to have without fault, faithfully walked in complete obedience to this list, even though with a genuine heart he aspired to do so. I'm sure I can say that this dilemma is shared by us all. See, if we claim to love and trust God, yet we find our hearts and actions are not always aligned With what verse 4 tells us here, then indeed we have a big problem. So, under this old covenant economy, who can stand in the presence of God? Not us. But God is not only a powerful creator, He's a God of love and mercy for the people He created. He established a new and better covenant. There is actually one who is able to stand in the presence of God. One who always had clean hands and a pure heart. Who never put his trust in an idol or whoever swore deceitfully. He is Jesus Christ. Jesus faithfully, without flaw, has met the perfect requirements of God and so can stand in his presence without fault. And if we take a look at Hebrews chapter 10 and read from verses 19 to 23, it gives us a hope under this new covenant that enables us to enter the most holy place and stand in the presence of God by a new and living way. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 10, 19 to 23. It says... Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. The requirements to stand in the presence of God were fully met in Jesus Christ. And we can share in that because Jesus met those requirements for us. God has opened a new and living way for his created people to seek and approach him with a sincere heart and assurance that comes from faith in Jesus. And by faith in what Christ has done, having cleansed us from guilt, we can hold on to the hope we have in Christ with confidence in his blood shed for us on the cross for the forgiveness of all our sins. And we can receive the promises from God that we read in verse 5 and 6 of this psalm. It says, They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, their Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Does this mean that we shouldn't be concerned if we sin? Well, it should be said that how we live our lives, is a reflection of our fellowship with God. John says in 1 John 1.6, If we say we have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, we lie and the truth is not in us. Under the old covenant, obedience was a condition for fellowship with God. But under the new covenant, obedience is the result of fellowship with God, founded on faith in Christ alone. God cares very much about the moral conduct of all people, but particularly those who are his people. This doesn't mean we're no longer without sin, but we no longer live in pursuit of the sinful nature, nor do we pursue salvation by works. What we do pursue is repentance. Clean hands and a pure heart a turning away from sin and relying on the death and resurrection of Jesus for forgiveness. This is how we be, the person whose hearts and actions are genuine in living for God. Perhaps you've known this for many years now, and if that's you, praise God and be refreshed in this reminder. If you're not sure if you stand in a right relationship with God, then verse 3 of this psalm is an invitation to enter into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. God welcomes all who seek him with a sincere heart of faith. If you'd like to know more about the salvation Jesus brings, then please talk to myself or to Rick or whomever you're comfortable with. Either way, we would love to hear from you. And can I add an appeal for us in this new year of 2023 to seek God's way with genuine hearts, having the assurance that faith in Jesus brings. And that takes us to our third and final point. Jesus has won the victory. Verse 7 declares, Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Picture, if you will, standing at the gates. God's presence beyond. Heads are bowed down low and dejected. Gates lowered, closed. Ancient doors firmly shut. There is no way to enter. And then... The king of glory arrives. The victorious king, mighty in battle, presents at the gate. The king of glory is worthy to enter and he brings victory. Now heads be lifted in joy. You gates, you ancient doors, be lifted and open to receive the victorious king that he may enter. Who is that king of glory? It's the same king declared at the beginning of this psalm. It's the same king who came into the world he created. It's the same king who shed his blood on the cross so that we can be forgiven for sin. The same king who rose again from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father and will return again to judge the world and take his people to live with him forever. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, the King who has won the victory over sin and death for us so that we, through him, can stand in the presence of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the mighty creator of everything and everyone. You are the King strong and mighty victorious in battle. We give you thanks that through faith in Jesus who won the victory over sin and death for us means we can stand in your presence. Help us to be those whose hearts and actions are genuine in living for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.